Amen. You all are probably quite familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, where there is the son who goes to his father and demands the inheritance. He takes his inheritance and he runs off to a far land and wastes it um, on all sorts of uh, unfruitful and unrighteous things. And while he is in that land, he comes under a famine. The land is dry and thirsty and barren. And he has this moment where he realizes, I'm here in this land starving. And even the hired hands of my father's house have enough to eat and a place to live. So I will return and beg to be made not even a slave, but a hired hand. And of course, he returns. And what does the father do? You all know. He throws a feast for said young son. But this morning, I don't want to think about the prodigal son, the one who ran away. I want to think about the older brother. Do you remember how the older brother complains? I worked for you all this time. I've always been faithful to you. And yet you've not even given me a young goat to go celebrate with a few of my friends. And now you're, you're slaughtering the fatted calf for the son who wasted your belongings. I'm not sure where the greatest... While that is a wonderful story, the account of the prodigal son, we miss the tragedy sometimes in the midst of that story. That here is this one son who is experiencing the restoration of his father and the great wealth that his father has. And there is another son who has never left his father's household and yet has never experienced the riches and the blessing that his father has for him. As we consider this text this morning, one of my great concerns is that we don't make the same mistake. That we are not in the household of God, heirs to all that he has to offer to us, and yet we have no experience of his wealth, of his favor, of what he has to give for us. And so Paul has, in the book of Galatians, gone to great effort to establish and convince us, you have righteousness in Christ Jesus. You actually possess righteousness through Christ Jesus. But now, as we are in Galatians 5, he is moving from thinking about justification, from the righteousness we have declared in Christ Jesus, to sanctification, to the actual experience in our day-to-day lives of that righteousness we possess in Christ. And so today, as we focus on those two verses, verses 5 and 6, I want to look and see the righteousness that Paul calls us to hope for. I want and to look at, I want us to look and see how we can actually experience that righteousness and also warn us against ways that might seem to give us an experience of that righteousness and yet don't actually lead to the experience of Christ's righteousness. But first, let us consider the righteousness for which we are hoping. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. As we read the text, you probably noticed in verse 1 that Paul said, for freedom Christ has set us free. You might have also um, 
You might have, well, I didn't read it, but if you drop down to verse 13, you again hear, for you were called to freedom. And so Paul is making an argument here that a central part of what we inherit from Christ Jesus is freedom. As we come to verses, verse 5, verse 4, these verses here, one of the hearts of that freedom we have in Christ is indeed the righteousness he gains for us. But what kind of righteousness? We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Can this be the righteousness, I might say, of justification? That is the righteousness where God has judged us and found us before his judicial seat to be innocent? Well, I think if we take this seriously, we think about the body of Scripture, of course that cannot be. Justification is a once and for all judgment made by the Lord. It is not something we wait for, but if we believe in Christ Jesus, we already possess. And so because hope is future-oriented and waiting is future-oriented, we are not sitting around waiting to be declared by God to be righteous in Christ Jesus. Justification is a once-for-all act that God does at the, t- at the time of our conversion. And so this must be something else. This is a future-oriented righteousness, something we eagerly wait for. And so I believe Paul is here orienting and directing us, moving from the discussion of justification towards the discussion of sanctification. Because what he considers is a righteousness that we wait for, that we hope for. Indeed, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. How do you wait for a hope? The commentators have many opinions on this. But the way I would think about it is we are waiting to have the experience of that righteousness that Christ has gained for us. There's a future living out and experiencing what God has declared me to be, I actually become. Because it's something we can do. It is something we can hope for. We must recognize the issues of sanctification are actually prominent in the book of Galatians. That one of the charges being made against the Gentiles is simply that... Um, they are not living as righteous enough, but rather they are they that they are conforming to the ways of living in the world as Gentiles, as those who do not keep the ceremonial law. And so it is unsurprising then that Paul would turn and consider issues of the righteousness we experience in day to day life. And here, as I consider that, I would cause us to consider uh, a danger. You know, uh, we spoke much of what we might call of legalism, depending upon our practice of God's law, our fulfilling it as being our salvation. But there is also what we might call the danger of antinomianism. You might, I, I'm going to think of it this, this way this morning, as teaching the wrong sort of contentment. Right? We are called to be content in our complete legal righteousness before the Lord in Christ. And yet antinomianism would come and say, well, you're also to be content with your present experience of that righteousness. How I'm actually day to day experiencing God's working in my life. How I'm actually living. Whether or not 
I am experiencing in my life and in my day-to-day walk the holiness that God has given me. You see, the problem with antinomianism, it comes and says, well, you are what you are, and there is no progress to be made. Don't worry about it. You shouldn't strive for growth in righteousness. And yet that is a great mistake. I'm going to use this image. Imagine a son who has been made heir to his father's farm. How would we expect such son to behave working on the father's farm? If he desired that inheritance, if he was excited about it, what would he do? Would he not be eager day after day to get up and to learn how to run a farm, to learn and to work on the farm, seeing that as he invests in those fields and as he works on that equipment, he is working and investing and experiencing what will one day be his. That sort of son values what he has been promised. Whereas the son that you have to drag out of bed every day to come do the work, the son who is not eager to learn, that is a son who does not value what he's been given. In the same way, we have been given Christ's righteousness, and we are looking forward to the hope of glorification, where we experience it totally, where we will live in the full enjoying of the Lord. And yet, as heirs to that promise, it is right and fitting that we strive to have as much of that righteousness today, to live and experience and enjoy as much as I can have and so you will see in some translations verse 5 we are so i'm sorry it's right here we ourselves are eagerly waiting we are looking forward we are excited about the righteousness that god has given us and so when we look at that hope of righteousness there is a glorification sense and there's a sanctification sense there's a glorification sense we are looking forward to our vindication before all It will be a wonderful day when we stand before the judgment throne and God before all of creation says, you are right in my sight. That is not justification, that is vindication. We are already justified. Vindication is God declaring to the whole world publicly what he has already decided for us in Christ Jesus. But we also look forward to glorification being made perfect in holiness. So no longer do we struggle against sin. But we are actually made whole and made righteousness in our day-to-day lives. No more struggle with sin. Simply wanting and desiring and carrying out what God has called us to do. And we speak of the full enjoying of God because we are fully holy. Right? There's nothing between us and the Lord. We enjoy him fully. We rejoice in him fully day after day after day. But then there's also that hoping for sanctification. And it's a glorious thing. And outside of Christ, we will never do anything that God approves of. We will never do anything that you can look on and say, well done. And yet we know, however imperfectly, that as the Lord applies Christ to us, we do things which the Lord can and does approve of. What a wonderful gift. We have not a perfect enjoying of the Lord in this life, but as he sanctifies us, we grow up and have more and more of joy of life with the Lord. And we have the progressive defeat with sin. I was just working with the young people from 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about tearing down um, all of the arguments and vain opinions that are cast up against the Lord and his truth. He's describing something that's going on in our lives currently. The Lord is currently going to war with false thoughts and 
prideful opinions that we might be aligned with him. And while, but while all these things are certain, we certainly don't see them completely or fully yet. Some of them we don't see at all. Some of them we only see incompletely. Hence, hope. So how do we have it? Verse 5. For through the Spirit by faith. Through the Spirit by faith. We are experiencing Righteousness, not because we produce it in ourselves, but rather because God is applying the righteousness earned by the Son to us by the work of the Spirit. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So in this sense, we wait It's this crazy thing. On the one hand, we are called to live holy lives. We are called to live in the righteousness. Christ is one for us. On the other hand, in ourselves, we have no ability to make it happen. We are actually dependent upon another. We are eagerly waiting for the work of the Spirit in us. We are in that sense waiting. And yet this is a wonderful thing. Because you think about the Holy Spirit, you think about your desire to be holy, your desire to experience a life that is like Christ, that is righteous. We are not being told there is this power impersonal thing that you need to go and take advantage of and make work in your heart so that you might change. Rather, we are told there is a personal being, the Holy Spirit, the third person, the triune God, who has all the power of the entire Trinity, because they are one, yes. He is at work in us. He is taking initiative to make us righteous. If I use another hopefully helpful picture, you imagine he is, if, if we are the house of the Lord, he is the general contractor who's come, and he's come down to do the work on our run down ruin of our life. To transform it. And what happens? We see the Holy Spirit take the initiative. He begins to do work. He begins to change things. He begins to give us some motivation. And what happens? We see the beauty that he is producing. And what do we want to do? Well, have you ever seen a homeowner who's you know on these TV shows where they redo the home, right? They start doing the work. And all of a sudden, what does the homeowner want to do? I want to get involved. Can I do some demo? Can I do some painting? Can I do some this? Can I do some that? Right? You get some excitement from the homeowner. In the same way, this is a crude image, but go with it. We see the Holy Spirit working in us and we say, wow, look what he's doing in me. I now want to work with him. I now want to be a part of what he is doing. We become excited to see our lives change and to do the work as we long, as we long to be righteous like Christ Jesus. And so as we look at this call to holiness, this call to be righteous that Paul will expressed throughout verses or chapters 5 and 6. We should see there's a profound difference between the holy life that Paul is calling us to, that God is calling us to, and the holy life that the legalist seeks. The legalist is seeking a holiness that is built on what I can produce. And that at the end of the day, must produce enough holiness that the Lord is able to look at me and approve of me. It is a holiness, it is a life that is stressed out 
that is desperate, that is trying to achieve good enough and therefore can never find rest, can never eagerly wait for what he knows God is going to do. The Christian has a patient and confident righteousness. He knows he is already made righteous. He knows he is righteous before the Lord already. And that what he's observing in sanctification, what he'll see completed in glorification, is the Lord taking and applying to him what is already definitively his, so that he lives his life pursuing not a vain imagination, but a certain hope. But as we think of pursuing that kind of righteousness, there is a danger that we get distracted, that we get off on the wrong road. We see this in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul doesn't use these words in vain. He is getting at the heart of the issue there in Galatia, which is the Galatians have been told, if you're going to be righteous before the Lord, or if you're going to have a holy life, if you're going to enjoy what the Lord has for you, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the Jewish feast. You've got to keep the ceremonial law. These ceremonies is how you will experience Christ's righteousness, how you will show you are holy, how you will indeed be holy. And yet Paul says, these things count for nothing. They accomplish nothing. They are not holiness. They are not righteousness. They are merely signs. They are things imposed upon you externally that don't serve any good. You know, it's easy to impose many things externally upon us that can have the appearance of righteousness, the appearance of holiness. So in In Paul's day, one could be circumcised. That was not hard to accomplish to someone. You can wear your hair one way or another or insist on this kind of clothing or that kind of clothing. Slap various bumper stickers on a car. These are easy changes. In fact, you can even create great change in a young man or a woman by changing his culture and his authority structure. How do I know? Uh, Well, you watch many a young man and young woman come into the army and they come in one way and they come out another way. Not because there's been some great work done in their heart, but because they've been brought into a different authority and cultural structure, and they have adapted to it. This Jewish cultural holiness that Paul is combating here, the problem is it's all external. It's all about changing the outside without actually changing the orientation of the life. It is about me producing my righteousness me making myself look righteousness, righteous, rather than enjoying and living in the righteousness that God has given me. And so we note the circumcision does not accomplish justification. You remember Abraham, he was counted righteous long before he was circumcised. We remember that both Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau were all circumcised, and yet half of these did not inherit the promise. Circumcision does not accomplish adoption, right? Ishmael and Isaac were both sons, and yet only one son inherited, only one son stayed in the household. Maybe circumcision is for sanctification. As circumcision shows the cutting off of an unclean piece of flesh, 
So this outward ceremony is helpful for an inward spiritual work. I would remind us of Luke 11, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, if you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. These Pharisees were circumcised. They were living as purely in terms of the Jewish ceremonial law as they could. How did it accomplish sanctification? Were they made holy in the conduct of their lives? Jesus says quite the opposite. You're like an unmarked grave. You're like uncleanness that people can't even see, so they accidentally run into you, and they are tainted and stained by how unholy you are. And so Paul says circumcision, the ceremony, doesn't accomplish anything. This Jewish system, it doesn't accomplish, it doesn't make you holy. And he turns them to something else. What is that something else? Verse 6 again. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I want you to notice first, though, what Paul doesn't point them to. Right? We have circumcision. We might expect that Paul says, well, circumcision doesn't accomplish anything, but you need a different sign. You need, right, the sign of baptism. Right? You need the New Testament sign. That will accomplish something. Well, Paul's aim is not to transfer the Galatians from faith, from an illegitimate faith in one sign to an illegitimate faith in another sign. Because whether it's circumcision or baptism, within this theological structure, within this way of thinking, the Galatians are going to say, well, I get the sign and therefore I am made holy. That it is the sign that makes me holy. And so Paul doesn't do that. He does not refer them to the updated sign. Rather, he refers them to the one to whom the sign points. And this is a good, good moment to review and remember what we believe about sacraments. The sacraments are signs and seals. And so if you've ever been driving on the highway, right, you see signs. It says, St. Louis, exit here. Well, if you're driving to St. Louis, I think you were pretty silly. If you drove up to the sign that had St. Louis and you stopped your car right underneath it and said, I must be in St. Louis. It says so on the sign. No, the sign is there to say, go this way to St. Louis. St. Louis is over there. It's there to point. And that is how circumcision and baptism, circumcision was and baptism is intended to work. They are not Christ Jesus, but they point us to Christ Jesus so that as we trust not in the sign, but the thing that the sign indicates we receive what is promised. So Paul doesn't say, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but baptism counts for something. He says circumcision or uncircumcision count for nothing, but only faith working through love. And so Paul points us away from a rest in signs, and ceremonies to a rest in the faith in the Savior. 
And just to touch on this one little more, as we think about signs like circumcision, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, we need to understand that there is an appropriate faith in these signs. What do I mean by that? Right? When I'm driving on the highway, when I see that sign that says St. Louis that way, I see it and I say, well, I believe that sign. I believe that sign is accurately representing to me the truth. The sign is working as a sign is supposed to work. It's not lying to me. It's telling me the truth. So then I continue and I say, well, I'll go that way to get to St. Louis. In the same way, baptism says, here is Christ Jesus. He is the one who cleanses. And so I don't say, well, I'll rest in baptism. I say, well, if I believe the sign is true, I'll rest in Christ Jesus. Hence, in Christ Jesus, only faith working through love counts for something. And what Paul is showing us here is that faith counts for everything. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, you might be familiar with my namesake. Or the other way around. I guess I'm his namesake. Mr. Fearing in Pilgrim's Progress. And you might remember the story where Mr. Fearing is this man who has been called to the celestial city. He is walking the path. But what characterizes Mr. Fearing? Absolute terror. This man is terrified that he will never get to the kingdom. That he will be drawn off and destroyed before he can arrive in glory. And yet, what do we hear as the story is told? Time and time again, we are told how the conductors of the king's highway, the men that God sent to bring this man safe from the start of his journey to the end of his journey, how they showed up and protected him, how the Lord restrained and withheld the forces of evil, that he would not be taken away. Because for all his faults, Mr. Fearing believed in Christ Jesus. And it was not the quality of his faith that saved him, but rather the object of his faith. His faith was in Christ Jesus the King, and therefore the King applied to him all the promises that he had made, to include getting him safe from point A to point B. And so it is with Christ Jesus. What accomplishes holiness? What accomplishes us getting to live in the righteousness Christ Jesus has won for us? It's not the quality of our faith. It's not how good we believe. It is rather the object of our faith, Christ Jesus, who has already won for us righteousness before the Father and is day by day applying to us that very righteousness in our lived out experience. What is this look like. We will actually spend much time in Galatians 5 considering this, but these words, faith working through love, are worth our consideration. Remember, again, that the accusation that's going to come against Paul that he actually has to deal with in the book of Romans is you're teaching people to ignore God's law. You're teaching people it doesn't matter how they live. But notice that Paul is not saying that here. He says, what accomplishes something? Faith working through love. I'm not teaching here, Paul says, a faith that does nothing, but a faith that is also working through love. I really enjoy what he does here because what he's done is he's flipped everything on its head. He has been being accused by the legalists of saying, uh, of withholding the ceremonies and withholding the need to keep the Jewish law, and therefore they charge you're teaching people to live unrighteous lives 
We teach people to live as if God's law doesn't matter. Paul has turned this on his head. He says, no, 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 no. It's you legalists. It's you who are insisting on circumcision that are teaching people to live unrighteous because you're teaching them to rest in the sign rather than in the Savior. And then he continues and says, no, it's not circumcision that produces holiness. It is faith in Christ Jesus that by its very nature will produce working through love. So the hallmark of a vital faith in Christ Jesus, a living faith in Christ Jesus, is a faith that produces in us working through love. How do we think about that? I want to direct you to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Very well-known text, but one worth reviewing again as we think about this idea of love. I'll start in verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts. I'm in the wrong chapter. Let me turn the page. Verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I'm sure that as we see Paul here uh, talking about love, and he has elsewhere defined love for us, this is what he means when he says working through love. What is love's focus here? Love's focus is other-oriented. It is looking and doing for the other what is good for him or her. What Paul is doing here is he's getting at what you might call the monastic problem. What do I mean by that, Pastor Fearing, right? You think back in the day, back, um, it actually started fairly early in the history of Christianity. There were people who said, this world is too unclean. It is too sinful. I can't live in it. And their response was, well, first you had the hermits who would go out in the desert and live all on their own. And they would sit there out in the desert and contemplate and pray and, and do a variety of things. But they were totally separated from this world. As time went on, this developed into what we call monasticism, of monks. They would gather into separated communities from the rest of the world around them so that they might live holy lives. The problem is it didn't work. That by the days of Martin Luther, right, we find out that these monasteries were hotbeds of great unrighteousness and great unholiness. What went wrong? Well, in part, I would tell you what went wrong is they missed this call to love. That they were focused on self. What am I accomplishing for God? What righteousness am I producing to show to God so he might approve me? What do I bring to him so that I might be, or what am I doing so that I might be seen in my world as holy before him? And this is where I want us, this is probably the thing I want us to catch the most is there is both a great wonder of the gospel and a great horror of legalism. great horror of legalism is it removes my ability to love because it forces me to evaluate every action I do on this. What am I gaining before God? Am I adding enough to my column to be righteous enough for him? Am I adding enough to my column to be holy enough enough in this life that he might bless and care for me? It makes my righteous, my obedience to his law 
not oriented on love for him or love for my neighbor as Christ commands me to, but rather oriented on what I am gaining for me. And we see where that lands in medieval monasticism. But what happens when I realize that Christ's righteousness for me is a promise? That one, judicially speaking, I have nothing to earn before the Lord. That Christ has literally paid every debt I owe, and indeed has paid so much more that I am certain of eternal reward and glory. Not only that, but he has promised the Holy Spirit in me, who is not going to sit around and wait to be activated, but is going to go like a good contractor and go get to work on my life and get the job done. It means this. I can live life not concerned with what I am earning or accomplishing, but my focus can be what is loving to God or what's really easiest to see in this life and evaluate in this life. What is loving to my neighbor, to my wife, to my children, to my husband, to my neighbor, to my father, to my mother, whatever that might be. It's no longer about what am I gaining from God. I am set free to do what is good for someone else simply because it is good and because God put it there. And that is a freedom in Christ Jesus that how do you estimate it? That, that I am no longer earning for me, but I can actually live because I want to do something good for you. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so as we close this out, a few things to consider. First, we must be careful. We must watch for expositions of God's law or discussions of sanctification that don't come back to Christ Jesus. It's very easy to write a great treatise on this or that aspect of God's law and never get around to reminding us that the way this is accomplished is by the Holy Spirit applying to me. That even as I strive for these things, I'm striving for them not to earn God's favor, but because I am eager to live in the righteousness that Christ Jesus has gained and promised for me. The second thing I would consider is that as we look at what it means to live righteously, we must recognize that it's very easy to seek to impose an external righteousness on someone else. That we can, by force of will, contain someone to make them look externally righteous. And yet as we teach scripture, as we administer um, the gifts of God and the covenant of grace, we must recognize that what our real aim is, is not a conformity that we can sort of hang on to as long as the authority structure is there, right? I know many a soldier who was a great soldier as long as they were active duty, as long as day after day after day, the first sergeant was there to get him out of bed, and they knew that if they got out of line, they would pay the price. But as soon as they leave active duty, their life falls apart because the authority structure that was containing them was gone. They had not sort of brought into their heart and into their sense of being the changes that were externally applied to them. In the same way, when we seek to help our children or help those around us live in Christ's righteousness, our aim is not a mere external obedience. It is a transformation of heart and a 
prizing of what they have in Christ Jesus that so changes them internally that you could remove the entire authority structure. And yet because their desires are set straight, they will continue to live in holiness. The other thing I would note here is that Paul is starting a truce here and he will continue to discuss in Galatians 5 a truth we must consider, which is that our holiness, our righteousness, is not very much displayed in our ceremonies and the prayers people hear out of us. I'm not saying that worship and prayer is a bad thing. It's a good and wonderful thing. But it is also something that's relatively easy to produce as an external adherence to God's law. And yet Paul says rather, faith working through love. That the test of our faith is very much in how we treat and love others. A vital faith will show love for others, as I expressed there in uh, 1 Corinthians, and as we will talk about further in Galatians. And so as we conclude, I'd ask this. What kind of holiness do you have? What kind of righteousness do you have? Do you have a righteousness that is focused on appearance? People need to see that I am righteous and I am worried that they will find out otherwise. I need God to see that my ledger is complete so that he will approve of me, whether in this life or the life that is to come. Or do you have a holiness that is built on waiting in God's promise? Notice here I'm not saying it's not a righteousness that has effort involved. But it is an effort that is built on the promise, as I showed that image earlier, of the heir to the farm, right? The son who knows he'll inherit this farm and cherishes that, he works hard because he knows that all the crops that come in and make income for the farm, he will one day own that. You can expect him to want to maintain the equipment because he knows one day that will be my equipment. You can expect him to seek to make good acquisitions of land or equipment or other things because he says that will one day be mine. Holiness we ought to have as a Christian is a holiness that says, I have a promise of an amazing inheritance, Christ's righteousness, and that lived out in my life as a holy life. And I love and cherish that. It is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I'm not afraid of losing it because I'm the heir. I'm not trying to earn. I mean, can you imagine the heir of the household coming to his father and saying, hey, can we get a deal so I can get the land? That would never happen, right? He's the heir. He's going to get it. So we know we have it. We know we possess it. And because we cherish it, we are seeking day by day to live in it. Not in doubt, but in promise and certainty and hope because the Spirit is applying it to me. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that our righteousness before you, whether in your judgment of us as deserving of reward or punishment, or whether of the living it out in our lives day by day in this life and that which is to come, that all this you've given to us by your promise, that Christ has obtained all of it. Lord, I pray on the one hand, that you would give us rest in that promise. That we would not be seeking to produce by our own strength righteousness, 
that we would not be producing a righteousness to show the world that has no internal substance. And Lord, on the other hand, I pray that we would cherish that righteousness so much that we would strive after it and long to experience it more, not doubting whether or not we possess it or not, but rather prizing what we possess so that we long to enjoy it. Pray these things.